0: Good to see you and if you're a visitor, you're especially welcome. We're glad you're with us tonight as we go through a, a passage that is one of Jesus Christ's open invitation to sinners. That's where we find ourselves tonight and uh, until the, the new year and then until we start our new series next year, which is in the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to Galatia where he obliterates every uh, argumentation against the gospel and he sets up Jesus Christ as crucified for sinners. We're going to do about six months in the book of Galatians together. So uh, invite your non-Christian friends and come along to feed richly on the gospel. But until then, over over the holiday period, we're going to be looking at the open invitations of Jesus Christ in the four gospels. So can you open up your Bibles? And I hope you have them with you. Open up to Matthew chapter 11. And verse 28 is where we will begin our reading tonight. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and following. These are the words of the creator of the world, the incarnate God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to me, all who who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. May God bless this word in our midst this evening together. The question that we start off with, Tonight is, uh, is really the meaning and the breadth and the depth of, of this promise and this invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but it is the sort of thing that you cannot plumb entirely and you cannot circumnavigate totally and fully because it is such a rich promise because it, it, it is founded on the mercies of Jesus Christ. And since in Jesus there is a bottomless well of mercy, we cannot fully plummet. We cannot fully circumnavigate all of its glory, but we will start. Now, maybe to some of you it's actually quite a familiar passage that you've read dozens of exhortations on this, you've read it yourself plenty of times, you've heard plenty of sermons, but this is one of those passages, the, the invitations of the Lord Jesus are, 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 like, are like precious precious metals. Now, there's some things that fade away with use. And and the more rubbing and the more polishing and the more uh, pressure you apply to something, maybe like wood or even a fine painting that's up in your grandma's house, the the more you try and clean it, the the more it fades away. The the, the worse it actually gets. The the more you utilize certain uh, 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 woods and timbers and finishes, the the more it will fade away. But the promises of Jesus are like like a, a beautiful, solid, precious metal. But the longer you polish and the, the more effort you put in and the more elbow grease you expend to try and clarify it, it only ever gets more and more and more beautiful. So this is a, a precious metal passage of Scripture tonight that we come to. In Jesus' words, his open invitation for sinners to come and find rest in him. Now, the question that we will ask first is the who, the who. The who may come. As Jesus stands here, likely with his arms outstretched as, a, as an open-air preacher with an enormous crowd in front of him, maybe he was on a hill or something raised up so that his voice could carry. As he called out, he says, Come to me all. So already we know that whoever he is talking to, it is an open invitation that will apply to many people. He, he doesn't want to, be sound, want, want to be mistaken as sounding constrictive here tonight in this passage. He doesn't want to be thought of as only speaking to a, a few, uh, a one in a million type of people. Basically, the, the, the sense in which Jesus starts his exhortation and his promise and his invitation is one to make us all think, this is probably me. This is an all passage. This is an inviting passage. So I want you to think that way tonight. That as this is called, this is calling you. But he does define it. He says in verse 28, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. This is who may come to Jesus Christ. He, He describes those who are able to come who are, who are willing to be received by Jesus, those people who, who should come, who are invited to come, are described under, under two, two phrases. He says the, the laboring. This is their, out, their outward, their, their external life can be defined this way. They are laborers, they are working hard, they are striving, they are trying to please God by their works. That's the laboring that he means. And then he describes their inward reality. He says, you're laboring and you're heavy laden. That is that laboring is what you're doing, heavy laden is how you feel. That inwardly you are burdened, you are you are you are heavy and weighed down, you are crushed under the burden that is upon your soul. So, in, in terms of being an outward laborer, here's what he means he's he's speaking to Jews. We know it is an original context. He's speaking to people who have not only the hundreds of commandments of the old testament under Moses but then also all of the additional exhortations to repent and turn to God from the prophets. And then, of course, on top of that, the hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of additional teachings that came to the Jews, not from God, but through man's tradition, through the, through the rabbis and the, and, and the years of man-made doctrines being added on top of that. He speaks to a crowd, much like a, one of the reformers. Might have been preaching to a, to a people that for centuries had been under the darkness of legalistic law from the Roman Catholic Church. Just like, Jesus, just like a reformer in that sort of situation, Here, he now stands Jesus. And he's speaking to people who are weighed down by the law about them. That, that They may often think, if I am to be in right standing with God... My goodness, there is just a a line, there is just a train track as far as the eye can see of commandment after commandment after commandment that I have to be busy doing in order to be received. Or, maybe this is the more common Aussie, that it is somebody who is laboring simply because you, you have an inward sense that if you're a good person, God will receive you. That if you're generally better than, than those people, than the outcast, than the one or two horrible examples from history that you can think of, as long as you're pretty good, you can be accepted by God, you don't need to fear death, whatever's coming after death, you're going to be okay with it. It's, it's that kind of mindset. The laborer who thinks the underlying principle to their thought is, there's something that I can do, and so I must do that thing to escape God's punishment and to be found in right standing with him. To the laborer and the heavy laden. So to the person who who seeks to get the baptism done and seeks to read the Bible in order to be a good person and who tries to one-up everybody else's good deeds and is early to church and tries to look right in worship and dress correctly and be the most conservative or the most learned, whatever they may, they're laboring as a Christian might do or a so-called Christian might do. Maybe somebody here in the church tonight, you're somebody who labors heavily, earnestly, zealously, crazily, urgently in order to try and have before God a right standing based on your own doing and inwardly Jesus pierces through to your soul and he says if you're that sort of person then you are heavy laden because there is not a single person in all of the world that has ever labored under the fear of death and God's judgment who by their own works actually arrived at a genuine soul level peace Anybody who ever labors like that, unless they are blinded by folly and pride, they are heavy laden. And that might be exactly you tonight. That that lots of people around you, and your friends, maybe even your spouse, would say they're a Christian. They're they're an exemplary religious person. They know the New Testament. They're they're, they're regular on Sundays. (coughs) But God would look at you and say, you are inwardly heavy laden Because the the weight of the law against your conscience is making your your guilt weigh down in your soul. The the weight of guilt weighs you down. The fear of death weighs you down because you, you fear God's judgment. And the overwhelming requirement of all of the commandments that you know you don't stand a chance at fulfilling, it weighs you down and weighs heavily on your soul. Jesus describes these two, by these two things, Jesus describes those to whom he is inviting to himself tonight. He says, those who labor and are heavy laden. But there are people who are one of those things and not the others, and these are the people who are actually not invited by Jesus. Here they are actually uh, uh, implicitly denied entry to Jesus Christ, and that is those people who are laboring but not heavy laden. We mentioned these people a while ago. Maybe this is you. This is the person who is in fact laboring. You look on their outward life and they're all about their baptism and church attendance and and membership and doing the right things and and, and experimenting with all sorts of uh, righteous acts of religion and being impressive in front of other people. And when God looks at them, he genuinely sees a peaceful ocean in their heart because they're blinded by pride and folly. And so under all their laboring, they arrive what? Because there's only two Results to people who labor to be righteous. And what's the results? You are either heavy laden or you are a blind fool. You are absolutely proud, maybe like many of the Pharisees to whom Jesus was rebuking. They stand here, the idiocies of all idiocies, what Luther called the heresy of all heresies. He said, no heresy has ever plagued the mind of man quite so wholesome as this that sinful man thinks He stands in right relationship with God because of his works. These people, Jesus calls the wealthy, the healthy, the fine, those who need not a physician. This person who is doing the law, seeking religious uh, obedience, trying to impress other people, and then at the end of the day, they they actually have the idiocy to go home, look at themselves in the mirror and think, I think that was a pretty good day. I think I nailed it today. I think if I was God, I would be pretty impressed with myself today. It's that person. But Jesus says, as a physician, as a doctor, as one dispensing antibiotics for those who are sick unto death, you don't need me and I won't take you. So Jesus does not say that to you, you cannot come. He says that to come, you must first become heavy laden. You must first come under an acute awareness of your fallenness and your shortcomings and wake up from this slumber of mind, this irrational thought process, that you think you're good enough for God. But not only is the the laborer who is not burdened, that person is not invited, but also is the person who is heavy laden, but not laboring. The person who is heavy laden in their soul, oh, oh, I don't want to go to hell and I know I deserve it, but does that excite them? or move them to do anything at all towards uh, uh, the direction of their salvation. Now, maybe sinfully, it could at least excite them to think, what do I need to do to be saved? Or, or rightly, it could excite them to the motion of, I need to go and trust in Jesus. But there are people whose heavy ladenness leaves them in a lazy sloth. And these are the people who, read Je- who, who who may well have even taken an excuse from Jesus' own sermon tonight. Because just before we read his invitation, he says this. In verse 27, for example. He says, No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Or up in verse 25, Jesus said to the Father in light of the, the, the what he had just seen, that there are so many people seeing his miracles, hearing his sermons, seeing the mighty works of the God-man, but they did not believe. To them he rebuked and said, I, I tell you what, Jonah's generation in, in Nineveh were more righteous than you. Uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were more righteous than you. They never saw the God-man or his works, but they would have repented if they had. To that re- generation that he rebuked so harshly, he then turns to God and says, in verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, yet revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Well, well, here's just the perfect excuse for the lazy, slothful, spiritual person. That you think, oh no, hell. Oh, no, judgment for sin. Oh no, I'm so unholy. That's all right. God will elect me. Salvation is all of God. No one can know God unless Jesus chooses to reveal it to me. It's in his timing. He'll do it. Or or, or stand on the other side and blame God and say, well, how could I believe? I can't, apparently, unless Jesus chooses to reveal himself to me. How can I know Jesus unless God the Father draws me to him? Oh, it's all up to him. I can't believe. I'll sit back. And so while they're heavy laden, there's no urgency. They're not laboring. That person is also not invited to Jesus. There's no need for you to come because you're not willing to receive the command to do anything. You'll just keep on blotting it off the table and saying, no, you tell me to do something like believe, well, I can't. You want me to come to Jesus? No, I refuse. I won't. God must do it. Well, to you, there's, there's simply no salvation. You're putting rationalism and you're putting heavy doctrine that is that is high and in the heavens right in front of your own self as an excuse. And God doesn't play those games. He leaves you and he does not invite you. He doesn't invite you to Jesus, he invites you to become the sort of person that is invited to Jesus. Because these people, and maybe it's you tonight, these people are not uninvited to Jesus because of their past. There's no past that you've ever had or lived that will keep you away from Jesus, uh, from God's side. There's nothing that disqualifies you from Jesus about your past, only your posture if you're not willing to receive the fact that you are heavy laden under the law of God and that guilt rightly hangs over you, if you are not willing to humble yourself before Jesus in that way, then the physician has nothing you're willing to receive. But if you will assume that posture as somebody who is laboring, zealous to receive salvation somehow, and somebody who understands that they are heavy laden under the burden of God's law, then to you, Jesus says to come to him. And that's then the question we want to ask next. What does it mean to actually come to Jesus? Because uh, uh, we, well, we can look at least at the direct context of, and the scene that unfolds for us today in, in Jesus' sermon. And we can know what it doesn't mean. Because Jesus is talking to people who are meters away from him. So coming to Jesus is not a locational thing. You cannot come to Jesus spatially and receive any blessings whatsoever. You may have driven a long way to come here to church and we're glad that you're here and praise God, but that's not what it means to come to Jesus. You may have come forward and received baptism. You may have come forward and had somebody pray over you. You may have come from, uh, from, a long, from, a, from a, a, an atheist land or, or a different religion of a different far land and here you are in the Christian West, so you thinking, have you come to Jesus? No. In fact, he's speaking to people who are literally looking at the God-man face-to-face, and he still says, come. In some way, location is not enough. You could go today, back in time, and stand at the foot of the cross as Jesus dies, and still he would say, you need to come. You could go there now and stand in Golgotha and look at the actual place that Jesus was, was born, in Bethlehem, or died on Easter at Calvary, and still God would say to you, you need to come. Do you realize actually, if you were to be transported right now up into heaven and see Jesus face to face, and if he somehow graciously maintained you from being obliterated into stardust, still then he would say, you haven't come enough. You haven't come near enough. You haven't come in the way that is saving and that really matters. The, 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 the coming to Jesus is not a matter of locale. It's not a matter of name and title. Because all the people, most of the people that Jesus spoke to, were those who had named themselves as disciples of Yeshua. That is, that in their little Jewish uh, uh, culture, they had they had started many of them to follow Jesus in some kind of way. That, that they would be asked if they were all at the cooler or at the at the well at some point at lunchtime around the office, and you were to ask them, "What's your political uh, 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 loyalty?" And oh, whose rabbi uh, is yours? That is, who teaches you, like? what denomination are you? What denomination of Jew are you? They, they, all these people listening probably would have said, oh, I'm a Jesus follower. Yeah, I'm a disciple of that Rabbi Jesus who walks around and does his open-air preaching and then raises people back to life. That's the guy that I listen to. So, so at least in title, everybody listening would call themselves a disciple of Jesus. And still to them he says, come. Or it's not a matter of ordinance either. It's not as if what he means is, you have to come through the waters of baptism. No, because he's speaking to people who largely would have been baptized by John the Baptist, maybe also baptized by Jesus and his disciples. So it's not a matter of ordinance or what sacraments of the church you have passed through. You can do all of that and still not have come to Jesus Christ savingly. And it is not a matter of hearing because he is, well, this is pretty self explanatory. The people he's preaching to are listening to him. We got that? Did that take any sinking in? I know that sounds ridiculously obvious and a stupid time to take a water break, but that's how many people think. Yeah, are you a Christian? You're going to heaven? I'm here, aren't I? I mean, I'm at church. I'm starting, I've am starting. i come a few times. I've spoken to a few but They love Jesus. They keep talking about going to heaven, and, and I keep on hearing this language, and the devil loves to blind you and then make you think because you learned the language and you listen to the sermons, and now you understand some of the Bible, that you have the right to just start walking around and saying, I've come to Jesus, and it's wrong. And it's a lie that looks good, that might make you feel better, but is blinding you so that you fall off the cliff into hell upon death. Listening, hearing is never enough. So what does Jesus mean by come? It is the same thing that he means that in other times of the gospel, when he's speaking to crowds and he says things like, eat me. Literal? No. True? Yes. Yes. Or at other times when he says, drink my blood. Or or he says, I'm water, so drink me. Or or he says, walk through me because I'm a gate. Uh, uh, He he says, uh, receive me. He says, come towards me. He uses all of these language, all of these words, and they mean the same thing. They mean to believe into him. That is, believe and venture upon him. I remember one time I was, I, was, I was a kid and I was sitting in my uh, childhood church and, and we were listening to this sermon and I wasn't listening because I was a kid. I think I was playing with my WWE action figures, limited edition, still on sale on eBay if you want to grab some off me. And here I was playing and, and I heard the pastor say, anybody who wants $2 may have it. Now, this is like 2003, $2 was like a down payment on a house before inflation, this was, this was big, still a coin back then, big money. Now, I'm, I'm like five, I'm like six or something like that. And I hear, does anybody want $2? I go, yes, me. He says, I tell you, I will give $2 to anybody who wants it. Anybody that comes and takes it can have the $2. Now, he's a pastor, so this is an illustration in a sermon. He doesn't mean to literally come up and take it off of him. But my brother throws his Barbie dolls, or whatever he was playing with, down onto the ground and he starts walking up the aisle like it's some kind of Billy Graham crusade and he runs up and he grabs the two dollars out of the pastor's hand and brings it back and waves it in my face and sits down. Here I'm waiting for the pastor to rebuke him for taking literally what was merely an illustration and he says, how dare you all? How dare you all come and say that I'm your pastor and when I make you a promise it takes an eight-year-old kid to actually take me up on it? Who here actually believed me? To to want the dollar meant to actually come and receive the dollar by some kind of actual action to receive the reality. That's what he meant. That was the lesson. I I was sitting there realizing not only did we go to church twice a day with my family, so I knew I could do that better at nighttime, which I did when the sermon was preached again, but also also I realized my brother was right. Right? He had the the simple foolishness to just take the guy up on his word and actually step out in faith upon his invitation. That's what Jesus means by come. He means come and venture on me. Invest your soul into what I'm saying. Believe what I'm saying. Trust in what I'm saying to such a degree, not only that you would tick the box on an exam or say, I guess that's my religion, but actually and inwardly, such that God would say in your heart, you have come unto Jesus Christ. You've, you've moved in your soul towards him and said to him, I need what you have. I want to receive what you are offering. Please may I have it. Another way that the New Testament says this is to call upon the name of the Lord. It is to, it is to take me, what I am promising, take me up on my word. Take me up on my promise. As much as you might, you might leap from a burning ship onto another floating, uh, non ablaze ship in the water. That is to venture upon it. Just invest everything you have onto this other, as much as you have plonked yourself, and some of you, there are more self than others, and therefore more faith than others maybe in these chairs, but in as you sat down, what you did was ventured upon this thing. This thing that sat there was not blind faith, of course, but you ventured upon it and put your weight into it. That's what Jesus is calling people to do. Come to me in your soul so that you put your weight into my basket, that you put your case into my hands, that I'm the doctor, that you come to and request of me a a prescription for your problem. That's what Jesus is saying. Come. Come to me. I can solve whatever the problem is between you and God. I've told you what the issue is. Now I will reveal him to you in self. Just come to me. That's what it means to come. And then we see who it is that we are to come to. We've been saying, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. We are to come to Jesus. That's, that's what he's commanding. That's who is preaching. But we can't just gloss over this as if there is in any group of 100 so people on earth a uniform and a unanimous understanding of who and what Jesus is. So who, it, who is it that's preaching? Who is it that is saying, come to me? Who is the me? And we can see in verse 26, or actually look at verse 27. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so what Jesus is doing by saying, no one knows me the way the Father knows me, is to say that on a human level, I am incomprehensible. It takes a divine mind, the mind of the Father, to actually know me. Do you see what he's doing there? He is calling himself of the same nature and essence as God. That's the logic of it. But then there's also the explicit titles of it, where he says, well, if God's Father, I'm Son... I'm right from his very nature. I, 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 am, I am in his nature, essence, and substance. That's what Jesus is doing. And then he claims authority. And he says, everything has been given to the Son. I have and I wield all the authority of God himself. That's what Jesus is saying. And then he says that he has the revealing responsibility that no one can know God, no one can be saved unless Jesus himself, this man In Israel, this Jew of the first century who dared to speak of himself as God, unless he chooses for you by name, for your soul to receive an understanding of God, you can't know God and you can't be saved. So on top of all of this that he said of himself, he's also saying, I am in total control of every single soul's salvation. That's who Jesus is. He is before them as man, truly and fully man. And yet he is claiming for himself to be God himself, the son of God, begotten before all ages, of the same essence as the father, but not the same person. That the father to him was a a sending relation. The, The father said to his eternal son, God himself, before all time, I will send you into that world and in that world you will live like people You will be like those people, but you'll be sinless, and then you'll die for those people. I will rise you from the grave, and then I will put you on the throne over those people, and anybody that comes to you will come to me. And anybody that comes to me through you will be saved. This is who Jesus is. He is the God-man with all authority. He is the revealer of God. He is sinless in his whole life, and as Jesus goes to say in chapter 20, verse 28 of Matthew, he says that the Son of Man came to save. He says, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give myself as a ransom for many. So, so as we say, to all who are weary and heavy laden, to everybody who is who is understanding this concept of coming to Jesus, Jesus beckons you to himself, not to a baptism, not to a group or a club or a membership or a building or a status. He calls you not to a thing, but to himself. Come to me, Jesus says. Not not the temple, not a cathedral, not the pope, not a padre, not a priest, not even your pastor, not your spouse or your parents or anybody else that you know to be more godly. Come to God himself, In Jesus. It's the only way you can come to God, is to come to God in Jesus. So all who are weary and heavy laden must come in their heart to Jesus, who is the savior of the world. And friends, he is not unapproachable. Jesus is not far off, standoffish, too proud, too high. He is near and he calls us to him. He calls you to himself. I know that by the very merit of you being in church, you would like me to assume that you don't need to be exhorted with this. Or in the very merit of the fact that I accepted you into this church as a member, and so did other church members, that you would appreciate not being told that you need to come to Jesus. But if I take even Jesus' example, for an example of our own ministry here, then then maybe at least one in 12 of the best 12 are the betraying Judas types. There could be any one of us standing, sitting here right now who actually needs for the first time, though you've been dipped or sprinkled, though you've given a profession, though you've given your testimony, though you've joined a membership, none of that matters to this all-important question. Have you come to Jesus? Because there is not a single type of person who is willing to come to him that he would ever cast out. Jesus is calling on you precisely the way that you are now. And look at the, the promise on that condition or, or on that invitation that all those who come at the end of verse 28, I will give you rest. Jesus will give you rest. We, we can think of this rest that Jesus gives to anyone willing to come in, a, in an objective and a subjective sense that is in an absolute reality and then in an experienced reality. That First of all, in the objective reality, when Jesus says, I will give you rest, he means what Paul says in Romans 5.1, that having been justified or declared just and righteous by faith according to the law, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is that on an objective status, however you feel, whatever you thought when you woke up this morning, however fearful you might get at times, the objective matter of the issue, the objective reality is that God is at perfect peace with you and will never want to and never could legally ever exercise anger towards you. You are at war before Jesus But when you come to Jesus, he gives and he publishes and establishes an objective, absolute rest. Now this is important because a lot of Christians will live on the train of their own experience and that's a roller coaster. You feel like God loves you, so you're happy and assured of his love. And then you feel as if your guilt is so high and your sin is so severe that God must hate you. And that should not be the Christian life. to, to be tossed and thrown by every wind and wave of your own feeling. Objectively, the Christian, the mature mind, is able to establish this by faith in Jesus to whom I have come because he was willing. He invited me. He called me. Objectively, I am at peace with God. Go to hell, damn feelings that tell me I'm not saved. I am at peace with God. That's the objective reality. But, but then what Jesus also means by peace and by rest is the experience of that. that. That is not to say that your feelings will always match the reality, but that he does promise a, a, a dispensing or a, 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 an, an experiencing of that peace in your soul. There's not a, not, a, not, not a promise of absolute assurance every day of your life, but it does mean that those who come to Jesus and have that peace, what God starts to do is renew your mind. He starts making you the sort of person who thinks as they should think. And that's a rare person in today's world. I'll tell you what. To actually think in your life in accord with what is actually true in the world is a blessed reality that, that the Bible calls renewing your mind, sanctification, uh, changing the way you think and therefore see everything. That you come under this, this sense of of a freeness of your conscience. Some of you, maybe you were saved so long ago and so young, you don't recall it. Some of you, God let run headlong into the world of sin before he called you back. But many, I think if we think about it, many of us will remember at least some point in our Christian life when the freeness of our conscience before God really hit home for us. I've counseled new believers and new converts uh, uh, continuously throughout my pastoral ministry, and one of the universal, not not entirely universal, but one of the widespread reports is this. They, They tell me as if... I've never heard this before and I don't tell them I have because I love how, how fresh this revelation is from them. They go, I, I just prayed or, or, or the, the word of God just leaped out to me or I was sitting there listening to a sermon here or at another church or something came through my earphones as I was listening and, and just what happened immediately to me was this, the world's weight was lifted off my shoulders. Like I was Atlas, the old Greek mythology, and I had the universe weighing on my shoulder blades, and then immediately it felt as if I weighed negative gravity. I was just floating, and my guilt, though crimson and though heavy and though horrible, it's not as if I felt deserving. I don't feel as if God gave me what he owed me. I felt as if beyond all reason and rationality, I was just floating in midair. That's not spiritual craziness. That's the way the mind feels, ex- no, the way the mind knows experiencing the way we think and feel. That this is what God wants you to feel. Maybe not in the, in the brightness of the newness as it happens at the beginning of every convert's life. Not always the case. But do you feel, do you sense, do you, do you understand at least this? Do you know that God wants you to be experiencing in your gut, the freeness of, the, of, of, of your soul before him, the, the cleanness of your conscience, that sometimes we'll wake up and we'll hardly be able to even, even be sure that God exists, that our, our soul is just in the mud and in darkness and buried and we have this depression over our soul. That happens and yet, deep down under that muck and mire, there is was, there was the shining assurance that I have nothing on the slate between me and God. I have peace with God and it affects the, the, the heavy ladenness that he referred to back in verse 28. The law is sent to tear us up and to convince us that we are, we are rightly burdened, we are heavy laden with guilt and we deserve nothing but hell. But Then the invitation of the gospel in Jesus where he died for us and rose again for our redemption, that comes to balm us up and to give us a sense of joyful Glory. So come as you are, precisely as you are. Come to Jesus. And he says what happens next in verse 29 that those who have come and received the first rest, the rest from guilt, the rest from condemnation, the rest from a burdened conscience, the rest from the fear of death and God's wrath, then he gives another rest. And it's actually an, an active rest, a a lived-out rest. In one sense, we—the first one—we rest from all this fear and all this laboring. But then, now that we are Christians, now that Jesus has published that rest to us, we then rest in Jesus as a lifestyle. So that Jesus says it this way: Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. So the first rest is found when we come to him, and then he says, I put my yoke on you, I, I, like, I like hitch you up like you used to do to two cows, and, and still do in agricultural farming. You, you hitch two cows together, you bind them one to another, and they pull loads together. Or or in the other sense, a, a yoke would be something that, 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 that uh, connects a, a beast of burden to a large carriage or, or something upon which the master would sit. And in that sense, you're yoked to the master. This is a lifestyle. This is activity. This is the way you now live is living in rest. So, so it's as if you were, you, were, you were a prisoner in England in the 1800s and there you were in a danky prison cell, and then somebody comes to you and gives you the the papers declaring your freedom. That's good news. That's rest immediately. But then they throw you on a boat and take you across an ocean, and while you arrive on Australia's land and other people are taken off in shackles to labor, you're given this estate out in in the Adelaide Hills where you've got a free winery granted to you by the king. And, And this is... This is the two senses in which Jesus offers rest. One is a publication. You come to me and in the moment you rest from your labors, you are right with the king. But then our lifestyle is also one of rest. That being joined to Jesus Christ, he carries our load with us. He gives us commandments as a master, but it is a beautiful lifestyle that he leads us on. Not one free of persecution or suffering, but that that even in that suffering... We have a master carrying the yoke with us. It's it's not a lifestyle that you never die. You'll die bodily. But even in death, you are not heavy laden. Even death is a putting off of sin and a coming to Jesus bodily, in soul. Even your, your, your horrible experiences in life are still a rest because you do not have the guilt on your conscience. I would rather every suffering, every ounce of suffering I've ever experienced since becoming a Christian, I would rather experience them a thousand times over than spend another single day under the burden of sin and guilt that I experienced before coming to Jesus. I know it's true for you as well. Give me a thousand lives of a thousand times worse suffering than what I experience now before you ever send me back under the load of sin. Our whole life is lived now, yoked to Jesus Christ. And the reason it is so peaceful, it is so wonderful, is because of what he says about himself. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find this rest for your soul. My, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. In this rest of a life with Jesus, are you free to do whatever you want? No, you're bound to Jesus by the yoke of his own blood. But is that burdensome? No, that is light. That is love. That is a gleeful, joyful experience. In fact, some people want to say amen this verse too quickly. Say, hey, Amen. Living with Jesus is easy. It's never cost me a thing. I can do whatever I want and then I go to heaven. That's a fool that has not understood the sense and the true meaning of this passage. All that passage in 1 John 5, 3, that this is love, that we keep God's commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. These people think the opposite way. They think God's commands are so burdensome, I don't give them any attention and life is great. Life with Jesus just rocks. And to them, Jesus says, you've never come to me. Because to come to me is to find rest and then to have such a changed heart that you look to the laws of God now and say, my spirit is agreeable with this. The the leadership, the mastery of Christ is in fact beautiful. I I try to turn aside and he pulls me back and he didn't bully me. That wasn't an abusive tyranny. He just saved me from stumbling. He kept me on the path in which there is life and pleasure and treasures forevermore because God is on this path. Yes, I'm yoked, but I'm yoked to Jesus. And the kind of mass, I, Christian, I wonder if you would say this. If, if a, if a non, non-believer came up to you and they asked you, what is Jesus really like? I hear the evangelist, I've heard the preacher, I know all the propaganda. But in your actual lived experience, what is Jesus like? And if you couldn't, in that moment, genuinely say, can I tell you that my Jesus is lowly. Though though he's God, though he's righteous, though he's powerful, he's never once poured out on me what I deserve. And and all of my sufferings have been less than my sins. I tell you, Jesus is lowly. He's not weak, he's not a pushover, he's not effeminate, he's Lord. But he rules in such a way that is life-giving. And I tell you, he's he's gentle. He does not beat me down. The the sins that I commit frequently, more frequently than I've told anybody, those sins in secret and in my heart and even out at the workplace, those sins have never once been dealt with the way that I think the Lord Almighty Omnipotent would deal with my sin. He is lowly, he is meek, and he is gentle in his heart. And he rules me well. Well, this merciful Lord This meek son of God, Hebrews 13 tells us that he is the same yesterday and today and forever. The the day that Jesus, God in flesh, preached this to a crowd of people, he was merciful and meek and lowly and willing to receive and promising a life of union with him and his law to anybody that would come. And it's exactly the same today. And, And I'm pleased to say that this will be the same into all of eternity, but don't Wait till then, don't wait till tomorrow, don't wait till you're better. That great hymn, which is based on this very text, says, if you tarry, that means to wait, if you hold back until you're better, you will never come at all, and the devil will have tricked you. Venture on him, venture wholly, come to Jesus right now, everyone, and don't let any other distraction or any other trust get in the way. I mean, how many, how many people might come to Jesus Except that everyone around me thought I was already saved. Who cares? That you would come to Jesus, except that you've already rebuked other people, and how bad would this look for you? That this would be a damage to your pride and your reputation. You're already a member. Doesn't matter. Come to Jesus. Or maybe you've just been putting up fights so long and it looks weak to you now. I mean, I've mean, i been telling my dad I'm never going to become a Christian. Rack off. I've been telling my friend that fine, I'll come to church once, then never again, and here you are. And if you become a Christian tonight, well, you lost your bet with yourself, didn't you? Come to Jesus. Precisely the way that you are in your sin right now is precisely the way Jesus wants to receive you. He wants you exactly as you are. So in this text, I've, I've explained the Christians this is, this is your, maybe you didn't know it quite in these words, but this is the reality. You came to Jesus because he chose to reveal himself to you. You received peace and a life of a peaceful yoking to Jesus Christ. And I hope that I've described every one of the other people who, did, who wasn't a Christian when you came in, I hope I've described your new life, coming to Jesus tonight and living with him in peace and righteousness and life all of your days. Let's pray. Jesus, never never in all the world and never in all of history would we think to put these words in the mouth of the God-man. That that here is surely the proof of God-breathed Scripture that was not written by man, is that there is words in God's own mouth that we would never conceive to, 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 to dream up coming from Him. That Jesus, God in flesh Himself, calls us, invites us, with no qualification of of our quality, only the qualification of being willing to come. And he invites us into all of his goodness, into partaking of all of his bounty, into receiving freely everything God could possibly give. Father God, we thank you for this invitation, this first of the invitations that we're going to consider. We ask, Lord God, that there would be no so-called Christian in our midst who, who because of the pride of their profession of Christianity that they would not tonight be willing to be saved. And we pray, Lord God, that there would be no one far off who knows themselves a sinner and unrighteous and a non-Christian. We, we ask, Lord God, that you would give to them faith to venture on Jesus, to just take him at his word, to genuinely walk up to him in their soul and ask for everything that he's offering and believe him to give it. Father God, we ask that you would make us a people who are as free with the gospel as Jesus was, who are willing to give it out to the the lands and the nations and our neighbours and our family members and pray that it find good soil. Father God, would you save for yourself people to the glory of your son. We pray all of this in his name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.